1: You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Paul Davies. Paul Davies is a theoretical physicist and regents professor at the Department of Physics at Arizona State University. He is a cosmologist, astrobiologist, and best-selling science author. His research interests have focused mainly on quantum gravity, early universe cosmology, the theory of quantum black holes, and the nature of time. He has made important contributions to the field of astrobiology and was an early advocate of the theory that life on Earth may have originated on Mars. Among his many awards are the 1995 Templeton Prize and the Faraday Prize from the Royal Society. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in the 2007 Queen's Birthday Honours List, and the asteroid 6870 Paul Davies is named after him. His more recent books include The Demon in the Time Machine, About Time, The Origin of Life, How to Build a Time Machine, and The Eerie Silence, Are We Alone in the Universe?
2: All right, Paul. Now, you are also a cosmologist and have worked extensively in that area of, of astrophysics. Now, you gave a talk about time travel, backwards time travel. Do you think it's really possible to go backwards? <laughs> Forward, Forwards we know, but backwards.
0: Forwards we know. I became interested in time travel, well, I suppose, like everybody else, as a, as a teenager reading books about time travel and uh, even read H.G. Wells, how to build I'm sorry, H.G. Wells' book, uh, Time Machine, and I came to write my own book called How to Build a Time Machine at the turn of the millennium. I was invited by the Royal Society in London to help organize a conference on the nature of time, and I gave a talk there on time travel, and a little book came out of it, How to Build a Time Machine. So I had to sort of immerse myself in the latest uh, thinking on that subject, and you, you mentioned the outset that traveling to the future is not a problem, and I Some of our listeners may think, well, really? The answer is, yes, we can do it. Uh, Einstein, already in 1905, told us how we could do it. You just have to move very fast, called the time dilation effect. And what it means is, if you move particularly close to the speed of light, the future comes quicker, one way of putting it. So, for example, I could go off on a journey close to the speed of light to some nearby star, turn around and come back again, And for me, the journey would have taken, say, two years. But for you left behind on Earth, I would have been gone 20 years. So your 20 years is my two years. And this is real. You can do experiments, and it's not not the slightest doubt that this is a a real effect. I might say, just as a practical matter, that the global positioning system, without which many of us would get lost in our cars, depends upon factoring in these time-warping effects of the motion of satellites that operate that system. So this is, uh, this is a well-established thing. And so if I'm going to the year, say, to, what are we now, 2021, and I go off, uh, come back in 2041, but for me, it's only two years that's elapsed. I've essentially leapt 18 years into the future in one go. And so but the other way of doing it, by the way, is gravity. Gravity slows time, time runs a little bit faster on the roof that it does in the basement. Again, you can measure that effect. Uh, Clocks are so accurate these days, you can actually measure the difference in clock rates in the height of a building. And, And certainly if you put clocks on rockets, you find that they're very differently out of kilter with clocks down on the ground. And so gravity slows time, speed slows time, and these both have the effect of enabling you to get to the future quicker. But you can't come back again that way. So I can't do a journey to a star, return to Earth and say, wow, I'm uh, uh, 18 years into the future. I think I'll go back to where I came from and then reverse the trajectory. I'll just go another 18 years into the future. So the big fascination with time travel, I think, from anybody who likes reading the science fiction stories, is really going the other way, going back into the past, because that raises all sorts of fascinating paradoxes. What happens if you go into the past and change something? Doesn't that change the future from which you come? I I grew up on a diet of Doctor Who and the TARDIS and Doctor Who would sometimes go to the future and that wasn't the problem, but sometimes go to the past and you immediately hit these sorts of problems and in the the movie Back to the Future, this is confronted head on that what what would happen if uh, Marty McFly were to... Uh, mess up his mother's love life and then he wouldn't exist. So these sorts of things are really fascinating. But uh, can it really be done? Is it possible to build a time machine that could transport you back in time? And then what about these various paradoxes? And And this remains an open question in fundamental physics. When Einstein first suggested that time is not fixed but can be warped or changed by motion and gravitation, he was very worried about this idea that you could loop back into the past, that there might be some way, either either physically going to the past or sending a message back in time, which also unleashes the paradoxes. Not, that you don't ha- actually have to go to the past physically, but signalling the past is deeply problematic. Um, he was never able to prove it was impossible, and in the years after World War Two, Einstein had moved to Princeton to the Institute advanced study and he worked there with eccentric logician from Austria called Kurt Gödel and Einstein liked to say the only reason he went to work at the institute was so he could walk home with Gödel and Gödel took the trouble maybe as a result of these conversations took the trouble to learn Einstein's general theory of relativity and produce a solution in which you can loop back in time. Now it's a bit unrealistic because it involves a universe that's rotating Gödel did take it seriously. And he, at, at the very least, proved that the general theory of relativity, Einstein's theory of gravitation, does not rule out the possibility of looping back in time, of visiting the past. Since then, there have been many other I- examples than Gödel's of how to do that. And perhaps the most famous of these is the wormhole in space. That's like a shortcut or a stargate that connects two distant points. Wormholes, black holes, they sound similar, but they're not. A, a black hole is a one-way journey to nowhere. You fall in, you can't come out. A wormhole would be like a black hole going in, but it would come out maybe somewhere across the galaxy. This was featured in a famous movie called Contact, which was based on the book by Carl Sagan and starred Jodie Foster falling through the wormhole. Some of the people listening to us may have seen that movie, but the idea is that you could get to some a very distant place very quickly. It's, it, it was shown many years ago that if you could do that and then return to Earth the normal way, to ordinary space, not back through the wormhole, it would be possible to get back to Earth before you left. And so that's the one that a lot of people think about. And so the question is, can we take any of this seriously? Well, I mentioned already the paradox, you go back and change things. Sometimes it's called the grandfather paradox. What it means is you back in time and you shoot your grandfather so you could never have been born. But if you were never born, how could you carry the shooting? And that seems uh, self-evidently absurd. But it doesn't totally rule out the possibility of time travel because, for example, we can imagine a different scenario. The time traveler goes back in time and saves a young lad from being shot. And that young lad grows up to become the time traveler's grandfather. Then you have a self-consistent narrative. So when you have causal loops... If you have self-consistency, that's fine. But what you don't have is free will. You can't go back and say, well, I cannot do this because it would change. That's inconsistent with the future from which I've come. But many physicists I know don't believe in free will anyway. And in any case, the laws of physics constrain what we can do. I'd, I'd love to walk upside down on the ceiling. I'm not free to do that. So freedom is freedom constrained by the laws of physics and if the laws of physics constrain you from killing your grandfather as a as a young boy then that doesn't necessarily mean that this is impossible it just means that we live in a world that is restricted in some way so i'm open to the idea of traveling to the past or signaling the past that opens these same issues but everything that i've been talking about is based on einstein's general theory of relativity which is our best understanding of gravitation and space and time that we have but it's not all of physics and Stephen Hawking conjectured something he called the chronology protection hypothesis making the world safe for historians is the way he quipped and the idea here is that some other branch of physics will prevent you creating these causal loops or time loops what other branch of physics well maybe quantum mechanics so maybe if you had a wormhole and you tried to set it up to be like a time machine that there would be some instability in the quantum vacuum or something like that would close off the wormhole before you could do any mischief. There have been attempts to prove the chronology protection hypothesis, so far unsuccessful. So it remains an open question as to whether the general theory of relativity, which is our theory of gravitation, which does permit travel into the past, uh, whether that is stymied by quantum mechanics which may not permit it and we don't know enough about putting those two theories together to be able to give a definitive answer so that's yet a, another question for our young listeners to wrestle with and maybe if they become theoretical physicists uh, to work on that uh, in the generations to come
2: now what of tachyons now my understanding is that they are particles that are we haven't seen but they're allowed by uh relativity to be going backwards in time as a matter of course do you think that tachyons probably don't exist or any 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 thoughts on that
0: well first i should explain for people who've never heard of tachyons that it's often said nothing can travel faster than the light that's not really true in, in physics what is forbidden is you can't break the light barrier you can't just go faster and faster until you exceed the speed of light but if you beyond the light barrier, the speed of light, if you are a so-called tachyon, then those particles are barred from going the other way. They can't ever move slower than light. And it's it's an idea that's been around for some decades, no evidence for tachyons, but you're quite right that if they were to exist, it would be possible to use them to signal the past. And that's because of the order of cause and effect, that if I were to emit a tachyon from my lab, send it to Mars, say, it would arrive on Mars sometime later, maybe five minutes later, let's just pick a number. But it would be possible for somebody moving differently, moving at close to the speed of light through the solar system, to see it going the other way, going from Mars to Earth. So if we're concerned about cause and effect, then this would then become relative to your state of motion. There would be no absolute causal order left. And so one person's signal into the future could be another person's moving differently signal into the past. And so we're back with the, the, these causal loop things. I think probably tachyons don't exist, but I did work on this some years ago on the basis that any, any particle that can exist would have been made in the Big Bang because there was plenty of energy to go around. So supposing the Big Bang had coughed out a gas of tachyons, like it coughed out, photons and neutrinos and other things maybe the tachyons in the mix would they still be around today could this be an issue and it's very curious that they wouldn't still be around today for the simple reason that as the universe expands the energy of any given particle uh, gets less and less that's the effect of the expansion so the photons for example become longer longer wavelength lower and lower energy the gases cool down and so on the point is that when you take energy away from tachyons they move faster so it's the opposite way around if you reduce the energy of proton or something it moves slower but if you re- reduce the energy of a tachyon it moves faster and then it's uh, I did the calculation and it turns out that sometime in the fairly early universe the tachyons will all end up moving at an infinite velocity which means they can't exist now that they would have effectively uh, disappeared from space time a long time ago So it may be that tachyons can exist. They were coughed out of the Big Bang, but they're not around anymore.
2: To bring up John Wheeler again, one other aspect of potential time travel. Any thoughts on the one electron universe idea?
0: Oh, yeah. So now uh, John Wheeler had a very famous uh, student, Richard Feynman, who uh, worked on problems of the nature of time in uh, the 1940s. Um, And he had the notion that maybe a a positron, which is the antimatter particle to go with electrons, is really an electron going backwards in time. And Wheeler used this idea of maybe there's only one electron in the entire universe. We think there are 10 to the 80 or something electrons. Maybe there's only one electron that goes forward in time as an electron and backward in time as a positron and then forward again as another electron and backward. It's all the same particle. And that might explain why all electrons have exactly the same electric charge. This this was a typical sort of Wheeler conjecture, slightly crazy, breathtaking, and again, probing the foundations of science in a very imaginative way. This is not entirely out of the blue. There's some justification for thinking of positrons as electrons going backwards in time. Because the way they enter into the laws of quantum mechanics, if you have a positron, it's like reversing the sign in front of the time term. So you've got t sitting in your equation standing for time. And if you put a minus t there, well that is a, a, an expression describing a positron. So there is, there is some sort of justification for thinking that way. But I think if you ask most physicists today, is a positron really an electron going backwards in time? You'll be told, well, now that's just a way of thinking about it in the calculation. That's not really the case. And certainly it was never the case that cause and effect were were going to get reversed. And so if if I create an electron-positron pair and the positron goes on to do something, click a Geiger counter or something, the cause and effect chain is exactly as it is normally. There's nothing going backwards there.
2: My last question about time travel is this. Now, there's also the many worlds interpretation that everything splits off into different timelines and everything else. Could that account for backwards time travel paradoxes, meaning that you simply just split off from the, the universe you were in and nobody ever really does any damage because it's all splitting off into different universes? Do you think that's a viable way to look at time travel to the past?
0: Well, it's true that if you think uh, that backward in time travel is possible, and if you also think that we have some sort of free will, then there's a resolution of the paradoxes, which is, as you've said, that it's not just one universe, but many. So I go back in time and I seek out my grandfather and I shoot grandfather dead. Does that mean I disappear because I was never born? No, uh, I've shot uh, grandfather dead. In a parallel universe, another universe, which unfolds with a history that doesn't include me uh, two generations down the track. And of course, we can imagine not just one other universe, but an infinity of other universes. So we have this uh, parallel universes or different version of the multiverse explanation of reality, then uh, the impediment, the paradoxes that arise in time travel simply go away. And people have actually done calculations to see if you can have self consistent leaps with these parallel realities. Now, when uh, this resolution was first suggested, and I think probably the first person I know who took it seriously was David Deutsch in Oxford back in the 1970s. Very, very few physicists really took seriously the idea of these parallel realities, parallel worlds, or many universes. Uh, Today, however, uh, most of the distinguished theoretical physicists I know would subscribe to that. They would say that the nature of reality is such that there's not just one universe, that quantum uncertainty, quantum indeterminism, means that all possible quantum outcomes are actually realized, they're actually instantiated somewhere, but in all these different parallel universes. And and that's uh, the way that they uh, reconcile the uncertainty of the quantum world with the apparent certainty of the everyday world. uh, Just take a simple example. If you fire an electron an atom, it maybe bounces to the left, maybe bounces to the right. Quantum mechanics says you cannot know in advance what is going to be the case. And then in this many-worlds interpretation, uh, you simply say, well, there are actually two worlds, one with the left-moving electron, one with the right-moving electron. They both exist, and they're there in parallel. And that every time anything happens at the quantum level, the universe splits into a stupendous number of copies on all of those pathways into the future, which in any given universe seem uncertain. They're all realized there somewhere. And so that's a very popular view of quantum mechanics today. I would never have thought it would happen. It just seemed to me rather bizarre when I first learned about these ideas. But I myself don't really favor it, but I don't say that too loudly in the sort of company that I keep, because it is now pretty much the official view for people working particularly working in cosmology applying quantum physics to the universe as a whole because uh, it's very hard to interpret what the quantum state of the universe is without having all these parallel realities
2: all right paul we are out of time thanks for joining us today and everybody should look out this coming september paul's got a new book coming out what's eating the universe and also check out his past books on amazon link in the description below
1: John, the opossum has created an Einstein-Rosen bridge into the multiverse.
2: What? How much electricity is that thing using?
1: You can't step through it because of causality, but you can observe the other side.
2: Wow, I can see multiverse me, and he looks exactly the same. John, the
1: Aposom has created an Einstein-Rosen bridge into the multiverse. What? You can't get through it. But you can observe the other side. Wow. Oh dear.
2: On that note, join us next week for a very special surprise show.
1: Another surprise, John. Yes. Did Ross not get you a copy of the schedule? I lost it. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Paul Davies. Paul Davies is a theoretical physicist and regents professor at the Department of Physics at Arizona State University. He is a cosmologist, astrobiologist, and best-selling science author. His research interests have focused mainly on quantum gravity, early universe cosmology, the theory of quantum black holes, and the nature of time. He has made important contributions to the field of astrobiology and was an early advocate of the theory that life on Earth may have originated on Mars. Among his many awards are the 1995 Templeton Prize and the Faraday Prize from the Royal Society. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in the 2007 Queen's Birthday Honours list, and the asteroid 6870 Paul Davies is named after him. His more recent books include The Demon in the Time Machine, About Time, The Origin of Life, How to Build a Time Machine, and The Eerie Silence, Are We Alone in the Universe?
2: Paul Davies, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, Paul, for many, many years now, you have worked in some very interesting areas of physics, cosmology, but also the origins of life. And I think that's a good place to start is how did this come to be, this this world in which we live with all of these living species and even consciousness? Going back to the very beginning, do we have, are we any closer Say let me, let me ask it this way. Are we any closer now than we were during the Yuri Miller experiments, where do we really know anything more about abiogenesis than we did 50 years ago?
0: Not very much more, I might say. And let me presage my further remarks by saying that I've worked for much of my career on the origin of the universe. And I think that's a lot simpler than the origin of life. And part of the reason for that is that the universe is actually very simple. It certainly started out in a very simple state, whereas life is incredibly complex. So somehow a mishmash of chemicals turn themselves into a living thing. And we have no idea really how that happened. It seems reasonable to imagine there's a long pathway of increasing complexity with molecules participating in uh, all sorts of chemical cycles and things. But we don't know the details of that, and we're so ignorant of it that we can't even say whether this is something very likely to occur or very unlikely to occur. So if you have another Earth and sort of try to rerun the the movie, will life happen on this other Earth-like planet, given the same conditions? We don't know the answer to that. And it's a curious thing that when I was a student, which I have to say was many decades ago, I was a passionate Believer in extraterrestrial life, it seemed to me that this was uh, inevitable—that there would be life out there—and I couldn't find any of my scientific colleagues to agree with that. I might as well have professed an interest in looking for fairies. It was just considered obvious that life was an incredible fluke, a chemical accident of such stupendous improbability it maybe only happened once in the entire universe, and yet. Over the decades, the pendulum swung the other way. So by about 1990, uh, and in particular when NASA uh, created the Astrobiology Institute and the subject of astrobiology became very fashionable, uh, then people started saying, oh, the universe is teeming with life. Uh, But the evidence hasn't changed, frankly. we, We haven't discovered a single case of life beyond Earth, so we know of only one sample of life. We know it happened once. We don't know it's ever happened again, and we don't know how to put the numbers to it. And so I think we're very much in the dark about how non-life turned into life.
2: Part of the problem here is that the chemistry of life, when you're looking at DNA and RNA, it is very, very different from normal chemistry, which can be fairly straightforward, not always. But this is something, uh, orders of magnitude different than anything else we know of in chemistry. Now, you have suggested and other people have suggested that there may actually be a quantum mechanical component here that either may have been involved with the genesis of life, but also the functioning of life. Could you give us an overview of those ideas?
0: I've come at this point of view rather gradually over the decades. I was much influenced by Erwin Schrödinger's little book called What is Life, which was written Uh, remarkably, in 1943, in the height of World War II, uh, Schrodinger was a refugee from Nazi Europe, and he was sheltering in neutral Ireland and was able to give a series of lectures called What is Life, and then wrote a book to go with it. It was very influential. I read it as a student. Now, the reason I mentioned Schrodinger is he was the architect of quantum mechanics. Uh, And so... In a sense he'd solved the problem of matter back in the late 1920s because quantum mechanics explains the nature of matter all the way from subatomic particles right up to stars but it leaves out of account uh, living matter. He was unable to explain life with quantum mechanics but he sort of felt that it should have something useful to say and that was the content of his uh, his lectures in 1943. And so I became influenced by that, but it seemed to me that mostly ball and stick models of chemistry would be adequate to explain what had happened. And over the years, I've become more and more skeptical that that is the case. And it seems to me, uh, well, if I should repeat Schrodinger's own words here, that some new kind of physical law is prevailing in living matter. That's the way he put it, a new kind of physical law. Uh, We must leave ourselves open to that possibility. And it's a rather drastic step for a physicist to say that the existing laws of physics are inadequate to explain something. If you go to a physics department, typical physics department, and say, can physics explain life? You'll always be told, well, yes, yes, of course. But then if you ask the question, well, can known physics explain life? Well, that's not so clear. And I've come to the point of view that we need to go beyond known physics uh, to some new kind of physical law, as Schrödinger suggested it. Now, I think that new kind of physical law uh, would have quantum mechanics as an integral part of it. But I've taken the point of view, which I've arrived at over about the last 10 years, that the fundamental distinguishing feature of life is information. It's uh, that life is complex chemistry, of course. But the thing that makes life stand out is the way it stores, replicates and processes information. And you mentioned DNA, of course, that is the informational molecule, as was obvious right back when its structure was elucidated in the 1950s. Uh, It carries the genetic information, the blueprint, if you like, the instruction set for making the organism. And that information is copied and passed on from one generation to the next. So we're very familiar with life as an information processing system, and even more familiar now, I might say, with the advent of gene editing technology. We can rewrite the book of life. We can go in and change some of the letters, some of the words, and make organisms to order. This is now part of commercialized technology. So the idea of life as basically software, as well as hardware, I think is becoming pretty thoroughly established. But that to me suggests that you don't solve the problem of life's origin just by figuring out how to cook up complex chemistry, even uh, how you cook up molecules like uh, DNA, for example. The the thing you also have to explain is the origin of the software. And I don't want to belabor this too much, but if I uh, give you an analogy, uh, to, to a physicist, life looks like magic when I see all the things living organisms do. I think, well, that's absolutely astonishing. Of course, I don't think it really is magic, but it looks like magic. But I have the same impression with my computer. It seems like magic, what it does. Uh, and I can remember the early days of personal computers thinking, well, how does it do that? And we've become so used to it that uh, we tend to take it for granted. But if you take something like um, PowerPoint or Photoshop or something like that, uh, it it is incredible what can be done. Now, if I go to a university, the computer science department, and say, explain to me the magic of my personal computer. Uh, And if the answer entailed taking the back off the computer and looking inside and saying, well, you know, there's some silicon in here and some copper and it's sort of complex patterns that we haven't quite figured out the details, but it's got something to do with silicon and and uh, copper and plastic. Well, you know that that was a ridiculous answer uh, to explain the magic of PowerPoint or Photoshop. Uh, You talk to a software engineer and they tell you uh, all about the code and how it was written and all the bits of code fit together and so on. So the origin of Photoshop is not to be sought in in plastic and and copper and and silicon, it's to be sought in the, the encrypted version of software And life uses an encrypted version of software as well. Uh, The the book of life is written in a four-letter alphabet in in DNA, but the implementation is in a 20-letter alphabet that proteins use. Uh, They're built of 20 amino acids. And there's a translation, which is the same, the code that translates from the encrypted four-letter data set to the 20-letter data set is universal to all life on Earth. And... Uh, That is very typical of uh, what we would normally regard as a communication channel in digital engineering. There's input data, there's an encryption, there's a decryption, and then there's an output. And so all of that sort of software stuff that we've become used to from computing, we, we have to import that into life as well. And we won't understand life's origin without understanding the software as well as the hardware.
2: Could it be argued that life, in addition, as an information storage medium, it's a very good one, meaning that it can preserve through replication information for millions of years? So could it be said that it's actually the most efficient preservation method of information in the universe, essentially, as far as complex information? Is it, could that be said?
0: Well, it's, uh, it's certainly true that life is very good at the information thing. It's often, uh, we use the expression, as old as the hills, but actually DNA is much older <laughs> than the hills. And a lot of the genes in your body and mine uh, are essentially unchanged for three billion years. Now, of course, what happens is that, uh, that life deploys all sorts of fancy error correcting and editing uh, techniques. So if you just took a, take a strand of DNA and replicate it, there will be errors. Uh, but these errors get corrected, and uh, then if natural selection favors uh, certain arrangements of things, uh, conserving those arrangements, then it will conserve that particular thing. But the the other thing that is astonishing about life, it not only has this uh, extraordinary fidelity at of, uh, of copying and preserving, but it does it in an incredibly energy efficient manner. In fact, everything life does has been honed to be right on the edge of what is uh, thermodynamically possible. And the example I like to quote is uh, the human brain, the thing between our ears. That is an information processing system of staggering ability and complexity. And it's got the power of a supercomputer. But a supercomputer might consume a megawatt of power. Our brains do it with the equivalent of a dim light bulb. And, and that's because information at the level of DNA all the way up to brains has been honed to be thermodynamically not perfect, but very close in some cases, very, very close to, to perfection, to the, to the ultimate of what is possible within the laws of thermodynamics.
2: Now, mutation, as a with quantum mechanics being a potential contributing factor to mutation, any thoughts on that?
0: Well, it's certainly true that quantum effects will bring about mutation. There are classical and quantum effects. The issue really with quantum mechanics and life is, in my view, uh, that there are certainly a few exa- clear examples where non-trivial quantum effects are playing a role in life. And, and let me just clarify this, because in a sense, of course, life is quantum mechanical because... Life is chemistry, and chemistry itself depends on quantum mechanics. But that's not quite what people mean when they talk about quantum biology. Uh, What they mean is some of these weird effects that you get in quantum mechanics, like tunneling through barriers or entanglement where uh, particles which are separated nevertheless have some sort of what Einstein called ghostly action at a distance uh, and where you can have superpositions of states. In other words, something can be both up and down, left and right at the same time. Uh, These very, very peculiar, weird quantum effects do, in my view, play a role here and there in life. And The sort of examples that people have discussed are uh, improbably bird navigation, uh, the avian compass. Some birds are able to uh, detect the Earth's magnetic field, and there seems to be some good evidence that they're using quantum effects for that. there are uh, probably uh, half a dozen examples of quantum mechanics being really important in a biological process. And the big question for me is, uh, are these just a few quantum quirks? In other words, you might expect life, which is so good at optimizing what it's doing, to have stumbled onto the various quantum effects over the billions of years and made use of them. Uh, perhaps if you gain an edge by using quantum effects, maybe... It doesn't have to be much, uh, maybe uh, you know, 20% enhancement, but nevertheless, it will be selected for. And is that the case that, that life has just dis- discovered and deployed a few quantum tricks? Or is life fundamentally quantum mechanical? In other words, will we never understand it without taking into account uh, some non-trivial quantum nature? And I have a sticky feeling that it's the latter. Uh, I can't prove that. Uh, But I think I want to go a little bit beyond that and not just say, well, it'll all turn out to be, as Schrodinger, I think, really, hoped, all turn out to be explained by quantum mechanics. I think we, uh, along with Schrodinger, I believe in this new kind of physical law, and it'll be where the quantum mechanics sort of meets the classical world of ball and stick chemistry, somewhere in the realm of molecules complex enough to behave like the sort of tables and chairs of the everyday world. Uh, and yet still small enough to touch the quantum regime. So it will be sort of on the edge of that, that transition, which is where I believe there will be new laws of, of physics. And these laws of physics will involve the way information is is managed. And that, that's where the secret of life really comes from. So this is really little more than a vision at this stage. I, I don't have any evidence. I uh, occasionally talk to colleagues and discuss possible experiments to probe this regime. But of course, it's it's technologically very hard, otherwise we know about this already. Uh, what, what I'm talking about is looking for subtle quantum effects and maybe post-quantum effects in systems which are already pretty complex and which are in an environment that might be warm and noisy in the sense of external disturbances, very hard to actually uh, do experiments in that regime hard but not impossible and there are certainly people uh, trying to to probe that place where transition from the quantum to the classical world and trying to probe where in the hierarchy of molecules starting with hydrogen the simplest you know up to DNA uh, where would we see the transition from the quantum world to the more everyday classical world So this is all for the future, and I hope we have some young people listening to us today because I think a career in science is fantastic, and if I was to start again, I would go into that area where physics, chemistry, computing, and information theory, and nanotechnology all converge because it's there that the surprises are going to come. It's there that the new kind of physical law, Schrodinger presage, is going to be discovered.
2: This is interesting because you, I guess you could say, and correct me if I'm wrong, this sort of parallels the non-living universe in that, yes, we have this, this world we describe with general relativity and everything else, but quantum mechanics doesn't go away at this level. It just becomes more obscured and quantum effects still happen even in the world of the big. So is it that far of a stretch to say that it could be involved in life? So I don't know that, I don't know that it would surprise me that that quantum mechanics would play a role in both the genesis of life and the functioning of life. But what is now to switch gears to a greater question. The universe itself, and a lot of people have pointed this out, seems fine-tuned for life. Do you think it really is, or do you think we just got lucky somehow just then that there may be other universes that are that are better? you know, for producing life. And we may live in one that only marginally so, or there may be even worse ones. Do you think that's really the case that it's just um, this, this fine tuning is, is chance?
0: Well, uh, that's a fascinating question. And in, in particular, your question, could, could we do better? In other words, the universe is good at life, but it could it be better at life. I've actually written a chapter on that in my next book, which is called what's eating the universe. And that will be out in September. Uh, so it's very much in the forefront of my mind. But to address the more general question, is it fine-tuned? Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that some of the parameters in physics, uh, d- really, if you change them by very much, it would wreck the chances of life. And I like to explain this by saying, imagine that you wanted to play God and you had a designer machine with knobs on and you could, uh, the dials, uh, and you could turn these dials and change some things you didn't like. So turn this dial and you make all electrons in the universe a bit heavier. Change that one. Uh, You make the weak force a bit weaker and and so on. Now, of course, we can't do the real experiment, but we can do the thought experiment. We can calculate what if everything stayed the same, but electrons were 10% heavier or something like that. We can work out the consequences for certain things like the, the nature of stars and so forth. And what you find that for some of those dial settings, even the slightest little change would basically wreck the chances for life in the universe. They would be, have, have literally lethal consequences. Now, that's not true of, of some things, the, the strength of gravity, for example. Life isn't very sensitive to that. But there are examples. And when you put them all together, it does make the universe look like it's rigged in favor of life. Now, is, is this evidence for some sort of big fix. Well, scientists are pretty wary of any idea of a big fix and they don't like the idea of a cosmic fixer. And so that theological interpretation that the universe was designed for life by a physicist God who got the numbers right, I think is anathema to many scientists. And so uh, they uh, have retreated. Many, many scientists now, I think, take the point of view that what we've been calling the universe all along is really only just one component in a vast assemblage of uh, different universes, which is usually called the multiverse. The idea here is that there was a big bang brought our universe into existence, uh, but there are many bangs going on throughout scattered throughout space and time. And this uh, whole assemblage is itself. And so there's an infinite number of universes to go around. Now, if you put that together, with the idea that the laws of physics are not fixed, they're not immutable, that they, there are some accidental features to it, just like there are accidental features, say, the solar system, number of planets or something, which way they're spinning, all these things just uh, accidental. Uh, that Maybe the, the laws of physics are like fossils from the earliest, hottest time of the Big Bang. And the other Big Bangs would have different fossils, And if you uh, take a sort of God's eye view and look across this vast assemblage of different universes in the multiverse, you'd find all possible arrangements of laws instantiated somewhere. And of course, in a rare subset of those universes, the numbers would come out just right for life. At least there'd be a narrow range, of course, it's never a precise thing. And then that leads you to the question, well, might there be places that would have more life because those numbers were more favourable? And the evidence, uh, there's a physicist called Fred Adams who took a look at this and he concluded that, yes, we could redesign the universe. If we can make our own universe, we could make it to be more life friendly than the one we're in. So all these are fascinating questions. The problem is uh, it's very hard to test. You think, well, how do we know there are these other universes and how do we know they could have different laws and so on? We can't observe them. Uh, this is just a sort of mind game is there any way at all that we could uh, test some of these ideas? And it's very hard uh, that the tests are really rather weak, but there is one that I'm impressed by and that's if life, if our universe is somehow typical of life, we would not expect to find it on the edge of the window of opportunity. We'd expect to find it, you know, in some typical position in the middle. In other words, that when we look at the values of those parameters, we would, we would not expect our universe to be one in which life just squeaks home. We would expect it to be sort of somewhere in, in the middle of the, the distribution. Now, we, we don't know that yet, but what it does suggest is that as we find out more and more about this, the strength of, say, dark energy and those so, sort of things of life, is sensitive to that that this prediction that will be more and more typical will be verified and that would be weak evidence in favor of a multiverse but it's not not a lot to go on and a lot of people are just skeptical about that whole line of inquiry
2: but it also creates another question is that if there isn't a multiverse and this universe is all that there is which i guess is the definition of universe It starts to look a little strange, doesn't it? Because then you have this this weird random occurrence of life and consciousness, essentially the universe perceiving itself. Does that seem to start looking a little bit fake?
0: You're quite right that if there's just one universe, this is it, then the laws that it came with, and if these laws are fixed, which is the conventional position, they were fixed up to bring forth life, or at least, they were fixed up to be consistent with the emergence of life. It could so easily have been different. Just saying, well, the laws of physics explain life. That's, as we've already discussed, there's much more to it than that. But the laws of physics that we know and love are certainly consistent with life, and that does look a little bit uh, contrived. However, this conceals a deeper problem, which is we have no idea where the laws of physics come from in the first place. The conventional view is that they were imprinted on the universe to the uh, get-go, the Big Bang that started it all off, that those laws were there at the outset, they're immutable, they're universal, they're eternal, they don't change uh, at all, and whatever happens in the universe, however violent the phenomena, the laws are impervious to that, we don't know where they came from. And most scientists think, well, that's not a scientific question. That's beyond the scope of science. You just accept the laws are as they are and get on with the job. But if you really are seeking a final explanation of the universe, if you want a closed and complete explanation of existence, you can't just shrug aside the laws and say, well, that's just the way they are. You have to ask, uh, how can we explain that? Is it possible to bring the laws within the scope of scientific inquiry as a legitimate study? It's normally considered just beyond the pale. It's outside of science. I don't think we should give up on that. But there's very little point in doing that if you think that the laws are absolutely fixed and nailed down. It's only if you uh, would allow for there to be some flexibility, and possibly even flexibility over time. The idea that the laws have been the same from the first moment of existence to they are today, uh, we don't have to stick with that. That's the original idea. It goes back to Newton. It's essentially a theological idea because Newton, like his contemporaries, thought that the laws of physics were thoughts in the mind of God. That they were God's laws, and that because God is uh, immutable and eternal and so forth, it reflected God's nature. Whereas the, the world, the creature, not the creator, but the creature, is, uh, d- doesn't have to be as it is. In other words, the laws are necessarily as they are because God necessarily is as God is. And so that, that theological basis to, to the laws of physics was taken up by Newton and, and others and it's still there in fundamental physics. It's still that essentially theological assumption, but it may be wrong. It may be that, that this is uh, after 300 years that we should give up the idea that these laws are totally nailed down and immutable and that we should entertain the possibility of laws uh, change as uh, over time or more to the point of what interests me as a function of the state of the system. But there may be different laws for for different systems depending on their state. And that's a sort of radical suggestion that I've been working on myself with colleagues in recent years uh, to see whether that offers new pathways to complexity and in particular uh, pathways from non-life to life by allowing the underlying laws themselves to evolve with the state of the system. So I don't have any evidence for this. This is just an idea of what John Wheeler who hated the notion of uh, immutable laws himself, he used to call it a, an idea for an idea. So it's still in its formative stages.
2: Wouldn't wouldn't inflation suggest that that's correct, that things do
0: seem to change? Well, in inflation, we should explain, is an attempt to explain why the universe uh, looks so uniform, why indeed that we can even talk about this thing called the universe, because when you look out at the night sky, you look far enough, Uh, It's the same in every direction and uh, out of great distances. uh, Take a blob of space, big blob of space. It's much the same as the big blob of space in our neighborhood. Everything looks very much the same. How did it get set up in astonishing state of uniformity? The most striking example is the cosmic microwave background radiation. This is the fading afterglow of the Big Bang, the heat left over from that originating event. It bathes the universe at a temperature of a little under three degrees above absolute zero, and that radiation is astonishingly uniform across the sky. If I look to the right and compare it to the left, there's a variation of no more than one part in a 100,000. So how did the universe get itself into this very, very smooth condition in the first place? Inflation seeks to answer that by suggesting that just after the original Big Bang, when the universe came into being, in that first split second, it leapt in size by some enormous factor, staggeringly huge factor, so that any irregularities would have been smoothed out, much as when you inflate a balloon, all the crinkles go away. So I like to say it's as if the universe uh, started out and it was a bit, uh, bit of a mess, and then it took a huge deep breath and everything got smoothed out. And so... Inflation explains the uniform uniformity of the way matter and radiation is distributed in the universe, but it doesn't explain the uniformity of the laws themselves. To get inflation to work, you have to assume that the laws of gravitation and the laws of quantum mechanics were the same in that first split second as they are today. And, and when I say split second, I'm talking about a trillion, trillion, trillionth of a second, you have to assume the same laws at that little sliver of time as all these billions of years later. And so that's a huge extrapolation. And it's, uh, it's very fashionable to suppose that was the case. But we can question whether we're really allowed to do that, to take laws as we determine them today and project them all the way back to that first sliver of time. Not sure that's true.
2: Now, we have to take a break, but I want to call attention to some of your books on some of the subjects that we just covered. And you can find them on Amazon. And they include The Mind of God, The Scientific Basis for a Rational World, The Goldilocks Enigma, Why the Universe is Just Right for Life, and The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with Paul Davies. Now, Paul... Another thing that people talk about, particularly recently, is simulation theory, that the universe could be a simulation. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, I uh, have lots of thoughts about are we living in a computer simulation because it's one of these things that superficially it seems completely nuts. But on the other hand, when you start digging a bit deeper, the arguments are very persuasive, and I think we have to take them seriously. The, The argument, let me just outline it, goes something like this. Increasingly, we're getting computers that uh, can outsmart us not just playing chess, but in pretty advanced in intellectual activity, decision-making in complex systems and so on. I don't think anybody would say that a computer that we have now is uh, literally conscious. But I think a lot of people believe that within a few decades, we will have, whether it's a robot or a computer, or we, we lack the words, but a system which processes information and AI, artificial intelligence, which would, as far as we can tell, be as conscious as another human being. You can never know that another human being is conscious without being there. So we sort of infer that from their responses and we could well get to that situation within a few decades. So if you have the possibility of of machine consciousness or artificial consciousness, then you can, of course, provide that artificial consciousness with a virtual world, with virtual reality. We know how to do that. And so it's a small step from that to imagine that you might have an entire community of conscious entities inside some super-duper information processing machine inhabiting some sort of artificial virtual world. And and these entities themselves would not know that they're part of a simulation. They would just be... uh, having their experiences so if you think that consciousness is a physical phenomenon and not some sort of magic then obviously in principle you can you can recreate it you can simulate it and so uh, then it's a, a a simple step from saying well how do we know that we are not simulated beings inside some su- super duper computer in at some other plane of existence and the answer is well we we can't really know that we can Imagine we could—we might be scared about that idea on the basis that the simulating system might decide to put an end to the, to the whole thing, and we could suddenly be, we be shut down. That's a, sort of an, an alarming thought. Um, but the argument for why we should take that seriously is a sort of curious one. We've been talking about the multiverse earlier—the idea that there isn't just one universe, but a, maybe an infinite number of, of universes—and that at least in a subset of those, uh, there will be conscious beings. But now you have to add to these, uh, if you like, real other universes, the possibility of other simulated universes or fake universes. So if you take a given universe, in principle, we could create a new, an entirely new universe of our own. We could use the laws of physics to create a big bang and make another universe. But it's far cheaper us to make a simulated universe, a fake universe, if you like. So if the fakes are much cheaper than the real thing, then you might imagine when you take this God's eye view and look at this whole multiverse, that among all these real other universes, there would be a much greater number of fakes. And therefore, a randomly chosen observer would be overwhelmingly likely to find themselves living in a fake universe rather than a real one. And so unless you have reason to believe that you and I are not typical observers in this vast assemblage of universes and and minds, if we think we're special in some way, um, that's different. But if you think we're just typical, then the odds are that we're living in a fake universe, a simulated universe. So that's the way the argument goes. Now, of course, it's not totally watertight. And some people just sort of throw up their hands in horror and say, well, this is self-evidently absurd. This whole line of reasoning, but actually, it's it is a persuasive argument. I'm not saying that I believe we're living in a simulation, uh, but I think we have to take seriously the reasoning. And if we're not, then which of the things that I've mentioned before is wrong? Is it that there there aren't an infinite number of universes, or that we can that consciousness is something that can't be created it's it's not a physical process it's something added on to the universe in a way that human beings couldn't do it you know the, or do do we misunderstand notions of infinity so that we're when we're doing the statistics here we're not getting it right you know there's all those sorts of assumptions that go into this argument but i i, I think we do have to take it seriously and like a lot of these philosophical arguments that they have a sort of absurd aspect to them but they, they point to deep issues which are well worth reflecting on. And I might say that this idea that the universe is a simulation is not a new one. René Descartes in the 17th century said uh, that uh, we had this idea that there might be a malicious demon who was planting impressions in our minds and that the, the universe we see isn't the real one. It's, it's a fake one uh, being created by this uh, demon. How will we ever know and And so uh, these these are powerful arguments that uh, go to the foundations of the very notion of doing science and the very notion of a rational world and rational explanations for things we We have to think about them, but that's not to say we sort of rush out and embrace them. It's important that these thought experiments lead us to uh, to reflect on how the universe is put together and what assumptions we're making when we try to explain things.
2: As a related and possible mechanism for the universe, or at least a simulation, what are your thoughts on Boltzmann
0: brains? So The Boltzmann brains is a similar type of idea. And again, let me just explain. So first of all, who was Boltzmann? Well, Ludwig Boltzmann was one of the founders of the theory of thermodynamics. And so he was interested in how heat flows from hot to cold. and Uh, We now know that heat, that molecular activity is a measure of heat. Molecules rush around faster, it's hotter. And so he looked at uh, how molecules banging into each other exchange energy, and and he came up with a concept called entropy, which is a measure of the degree of disorder in a system. But of course, he realized that there would be no flow of heat in the universe at all, unless the universe had started out in a more much more orderly or low entropy state than it's in now. And uh, because uh, the second law of thermodynamics, which he was the architect, says that entropy can only go up, disorder can only increase, how did the universe ever get itself into an ordered state in the first place? So he had uh, a curious explanation for that. And its analogy is is if you uh, take a, a deck of cards, I'm told this, I've never actually checked, if I go down to a local store uh, here in Phoenix and buy a new deck of cards, when I open them, I'll find that they're arranged in suit and numerical order. That's the folklore. And so if you shuffle the cards, they will be less ordered. And it, afterwards, they'll be jumbled. Now, if you went to a magic act and you gave uh, the jumbled deck of cards to the magician, who then shuffled them, gave them back to you in suit, suit order, you know you were being tricked. However, it's not strictly impossible to shuffle the cards back into their original configuration. So it's exceedingly unlikely. And now, if you think the same thing with gas is, can you get back to the state you were in initially? Imagine a box of gas with all the molecules in one corner and you let it go. They rush out, they fill the box, and then uh, the gas just sits there. Is it possible that they could all rush back together into their corner? Well, the answer is like shuffling cards it's not strictly impossible, but it's exceedingly improbable. And so Boltzmann had the idea, well, this must have been how the universe got itself into an ordered state in the first place. There was some gigantic fluctuation from thermodynamic equilibrium. It was necessary in order that there should be conscious beings. And and the fact we witness this near miracle is because it's a prerequisite for our very existence. So that's the, the idea why it's named after Boltzmann. But the, the point is this, that if the universe endures forever, we don't know that's going to happen, but supposing it goes on forever and ever, then given an infinite time, is it not possible to have these near miracles occurring? Because in an infinite time, even the near impossible is going to happen, and happen infinitely often. So is it possible that a brain could be reconstituted out of next to nothing and come into existence and have experiences and then dissolve away again. From what we predict about the very far future of the universe, it's likely to be just sort of empty space with quantum fluctuations. But the very fact that there are quantum fluctuations means there's a sort of randomness to it like shuffling the cards and out of this quantum filament, it's possible in principle for something like a brain to come into existence. It wouldn't last very long, but it does raise the question of whether, we're back to this numbers game, if you are an arbitrary observer, what is more likely? That you'll be living on, on a planet some few billion years after the beginning of the universe, or is it more likely you're going to be a Boltzmann brain, untold trillions of years in, in the future, being constituted from, from this quantum vacuum? And again, when you put the numbers in, it looks like uh, experiences would be Boltzmann brain's Every time they would infinitely outnumber the non-Boltzmann brain type observers, So it's another one of these philosophical arguments that you don't necessarily have to believe it, but it calls into question the underlying assumptions that you're making in your cosmological model or your physical model or your model of the nature of consciousness. All of these things go into that mix. And this is taken seriously enough that there are entire conferences devoted to the question of, of Boltzmann brains. So so we're here dealing with, um, I don't know what uh, used to be called ironic science. Uh, we're examining the conceptual foundations of these really profound subjects like cosmology and fundamental physics and the nature of physical law and so on, and the nature of consciousness. All of these things are very deep, very important, and not totally understood. And we're examining those conceptual foundations by a variety of thought experiments or a variety of scenarios where if you believe that the world is rational and that ultimately there are reasons for why things are as they are and that it should hang together in a rational way, well, then these types of discussions that we've just been having form an important part of, of saying, have we got all this right? Are we looking, have we got the right framework for approaching these problems? And again, I, to, being a heretic, I'm going to say I'm not sure we have. I'm not sure. I think that some of these problems and things like Boltzmann brains means that we're probably thinking about the universe in the wrong way.
2: Now to go from the the huge scope of the universe down to the small in regards to life, if life is very rare or even unique to this planet in the universe, then doesn't that start to create questions about the origins of life on earth? Because as far as we know, or as far as we can see, life seems to have begun on this planet just the very first moment it could. But then there's Mars. Do you think that if we're if life is rare, then our origin is probably more likely to be on
0: Mars? Uh, I've always been fascinated by this idea uh, that life on Earth may not have started on Earth. And I think part of the reason for that is my early exposure to Fred Hoyle, who was a a famous British cosmologist who also dabbled around in the origin of life and he's one of these uh, genius people who had many, many wonderful ideas and many, many crazy ideas. But he certainly believed that life could uh, travel across the universe. And uh, so that sort of stayed with me, that idea. But to come to your point, that life did get going on Earth really rather rapidly. Uh, Earth is four and a half billion years old. There's evidence, uh, good evidence for life in uh, the hills in Australia, going back three and a half billion years and some possible evidence from before that. And so uh, there's been life on earth for a greater part of its existence. So there are two explanations. One is, well, life is easy. It pops up all over the place. It's no surprise it started quickly. I'm not convinced of that. So the other is, uh, well, no, actually, life is really hard to get going and you need as long a period of time as you've got. So can you extend that period of time. And within the solar system, I think the answer is yes, it's possible life started on Mars and then came to earth in a meteorite. And now how does this happen? Well, from time to time, uh, Mars and and earth are hit by big rocks, uh, asteroids, comets with enough force to splatter material all around the solar system. And Earth rocks go to Mars, Mars rocks come to earth. There's about half a dozen Mars rocks in the meteorite collection here at Arizona State University. So um, these things are now known. They weren't uh, 50 years ago, but we now know of many, many examples of Mars rocks coming to Earth. So if Earth and Mars can trade rocks, can they trade organisms, uh, microorganisms only? Uh, can microbes living inside rocks be transferred from Mars to Earth or Earth to Mars? And I suggested that idea back in the early 1990s and It was met with total derision. I might say that there was an occasion where I was even denounced for this idea in the after-dinner speech at a conference in London. It's it's one thing to be criticised during a lecture, quite another to be picked on uh, during the the dinner speech. But uh, anyway, um, it it very soon became clear that what I was suggesting is in fact the case, that it's entirely possible for life to make the journey from Mars to Earth or Earth to Mars. So that raises the question about whether maybe life started on Mars and uh, came to Earth inside these rocks at a later stage when Earth was suitable uh, for for life. So it was incubated on Mars. Uh, Why is Mars more favorable than Earth? Well it's not an overwhelming case but it's a smaller planet so it cooled quicker and was ready for life sooner. And that's important because the bombardment I've been talking about was really ferocious in the early days. And the best place for life to be is actually deep under the ground in those circumstances. We now know there's life under our feet going down to maybe five kilometers. Pretty much everywhere you drill, on land or beneath the ocean, you find life living in the rock underneath. So the biosphere is not just a veneer on the surface of the Earth. It extends deep down into the crust. Uh, The same would have, if there was life or is life on Mars, would be also true, it would be in the subsurface. But uh, it would be possible because Mars cool quicker for that subsurface life to be deeper sooner. So in other words, it was a great place to shelter from the the effects of that bombardment. So the bombardment, which would have propagated life between planets, uh, also threatened its existence in the early days so that's the sort of general argument in a way this would be disappointing the question that we've been addressing throughout our conversation is really uh, is life a a fluke is it something that maybe happened just once just a gigantic chemical accident or is it somehow built in into the laws of the universe Uh, is the universe literally rigged in favor of life so life pops up wherever you want it and we could answer that question if we had a second sample of life That's what we really like. We'd love to go to Mars and say, yes, life happened on Mars as well. So therefore, two out of two in the solar system is pretty good odds. The universe must be teeming with it. Uh, The universe must be rigged in favor of life. But sadly, Mars is compromised because of this exchange of material. We might well go to Mars and find there is or was life there. It's just boring old Earth life. It's just the same life that we know. There's still only one sample of it. We'd like a second sample of life to be able to settle this matter. As a matter of fact, we don't have to go to Mars even to find a second sample of life. It's possible that there's a second sample of life right here on Earth. which just overlooked it. But in the microbial realm, the vast majority of those uh, little critters have not been cultured or characterized, let alone their sequence. We don't know what they are. Uh, it's possible that intermingled with the microbes, that is our form of life, the life we know and love, is descendants of a second genesis that would have occurred, or many, many genesis would have occurred right here on Earth. So whether you go to Mars, whether it's on Earth, whether it's somewhere else, like Enceladus or Europa, or or outside of the solar system, what we really want is a second sample of life. Because when you've only got one, you can't be sure uh, that it's not just... Uh, a freak, not just a result of the dream run of chemical processes that just happened once and we are it. That's why I attach such enormous importance to looking uh, for life beyond Earth. One, one microbe beyond Earth, or even here, as I've said, on Earth in some sort of shadow biosphere, it's one microbe that is life but not as we know it would suffice to make the case that the universe is indeed teeming with life and the laws fundamentally life friendly.
2: Europa would seem to me, one, because of the ice shell and two, because it's further out, would seem to be less subject to transpermia, right? So that might be, if we found life there, that might be a better chance than Mars for finding a truly independent occurrence of life, right?
0: Yes, in the early days when I uh, was touting this idea of the uh, Mars exchange, it seemed to me that that was inevitably the case, that these outer moons of the solar system would uh, be protected from that. But calculations have been done in recent years that show that it's not uh, totally impossible for Earth rocks or Mars rocks uh, to get out to Europa or Enceladus. And, uh, of course, it's one thing to get there. It's another thing for life to be able to gain a foothold. If a rock falls on the icy crust of Europa, you believe that the conditions beneath the ice are conducive to life well then somehow the rock has to get there so it's far less probable in the case of Earth and Mars I think it's absolutely inevitable particularly that when this bombardment was at its fiercest between 3.5 and and 4 billion years ago Mars and Earth were very similar Mars was warm and wet and probably had a thick atmosphere so if Earth life went to Mars or the other way Mars life came to Earth would have been similar conditions so it would have been a congenial habitat to set up home, a new home. Um, That would be far less likely, I think, on these icy moons.
2: Now, one last possibility for answering the question is, here on Earth in the laboratory, when do you think, or do you think it's ever going to be possible for scientists to create artificial life and crack the uh, mystery of abiogenesis that way? Or do you think that's a pipe dream?
0: Well, um, there's a lot of terminological confusion around this because people will often say, oh, we've already created life in the lab. Didn't Craig Venter uh, create a novel microorganism many years ago in which he basically designed his own uh, genome and even inserted his email address according to the folklore, uploaded it into an existing microbe and then sort of booted it up. And uh, it's called Mycoplasma Laboratorium well that's reengineering existing life, or if you like, it's rewriting the software so coming back to my computer analogy it 's like saying well i 'll take the computer, thank you very much, but i 'm going to rewrite the code and you know tw- tweak a few things uh, with, with PowerPoint, put in a few new features so it's it's possible right now to edit life but uh, not to create it from scratch and where it, it 's hard to express just how far we are from the idea of going from simple mix of chemicals to something which is a truly autonomous living thing with all of its uh, software and hardware coupled in such a way that it can make a living on its own uh, without external manipulation. We're we're so, so far from that. But even if it were possible, we can imagine that, uh, you know, maybe in a thousand years with fantastic technology, it were possible to actually step by step put together a living organism Would that explain how life got going uh, on Earth or Mars or wherever, the life that we now know, would that explain its origin? And the answer I think is no. Uh, It's it's one thing to have fancy equipment and a well stocked lab and more to the point, an intelligent designer, also known as a clever scientist, knowing what they're trying to achieve and putting it all together. It's one thing to expect that to happen as a deliberate process quite another to say how it happened in the sort of grubby, random circumstances of a a prebiotic planet. So even if we can make life in the lab, it wouldn't necessarily explain how it happened in nature, but it would give some important clues. And in particular, I said earlier, we have no idea whether the pathway from non-life to life is one of these things that's inevitable given enough time and the right circumstances, or whether it is so fluky It's only going to happen once. If you could make life in the lab and then say, well, actually, this is pretty easy. We can vary a lot of the conditions, a lot of parameters, and yes, we still get to life. In other words, it's a broad path from non-life to life. If you could establish that, that would, I think, very much help. But all of this is so far in the future, it's so speculative, creating life from scratch, not just rearranging things, starting it from scratch, without step-by-step intervention in a very careful way they're so far from that that I, I um i don't think uh, any people listening to us now are going to be alive even when it happens
2: and we are out of time today we were joined by paul davies and paul has a book coming out in september entitled what's eating the universe look for it thanks for listening i am futurist and science fiction Jane. author
1: Wrong channel.
2: No, it's not. Thanks for listening. I am futurist and science fiction author John Michael Godier, currently hosting Event Horizon and wondering where Anna actually came from. One day I had a tablet computer, the next I had a boss. Very disturbing. And be sure...
1: And that's enough of that. YouTuber forever!
2: Like, subscribe, and hit the bell! Sell out. What?